Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 266th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I'm so happy that on this episode, our first of the new Emmys and Tony season, my guest is one of Hollywood's fastest rising stars, a 25-year-old Canadian who anchored one of the most acclaimed movies of 2018, Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk, and who is now in serious Emmy contention for a 2018 TV series, Sam Esmail's Homecoming, which streamed on Amazon Prime, in which he played a military veteran being counseled by a therapist played by none other than Julia Roberts, the terrific Stefan James. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, James and I discussed his evolution from reserve kid to professional actor, how several fateful events led him to the parts of two iconic African-Americans, John Lewis in Ava DuVernay's 2014 film Selma and Jesse Owens in Stephen Hopkins' 2016 film Race, the unique acting challenges posed by Beale Street, in which Glass separates him from his co-star Kiki Lane in most of their scenes together, and Homecoming with its lengthy dialogues, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We begin with the basics on this podcast. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Yeah, thank you for having me. So I'm from Toronto, Toronto, Canada. My mom worked in the school as a social worker. I grew up, you know, single mom, three boys, so two brothers and a middle child, and sort of found my way here after starting acting there and maybe 10 years ago. Yes. And I want to ask you, just because I saw a quote of yours that I, I love the way you framed it. People asked you about where you grew up, and you said that my Beale Street was Bay Mills Boulevard. What was going on on Bay Mills Boulevard when you were a kid? Yeah, Bay Mills Boulevard. It's everything. It's my childhood. It's like the foundation of who I am. You know, Bay Mills is where I grew up for the first 12 years of my life. And yeah, again, really just shaped me into a person I sort of am today. Grew up in an area, a town called Scarborough. You know, famously known for having, you know, some rough areas. So we grew up and, and we had our fair share of struggles. Obviously, my mom being a single mother, raising three boys. I think for me, it says a lot about just what you can overcome if you believe in something hard enough. Yes. This may seem random, but were movies a big part of the James household when you were a kid? Huge part. Yeah. Huge, huge part, actually. You know, in an effort to sort of like keep us in the house, my mom would just buy us a whole ton of VHSs. It's just- and I just remember having boxes filled with them, like hundreds of them. And, uh, and <laughs> me and my brother, you know what? I mean, I always go back to like classics, like The Lion King. Oh, yeah. But I will say like one of my favorite movies that I always used to try and sneak in whenever my mom wasn't around was Reservoir Dogs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's great. So, yeah. So you have described yourself in a lot of interviews that I read prepping for this as having been a very reserved kid. So how does that kind of a kid end up performing? I don't know, man. I'm <laughs> I'm wondering the same thing. I'm like, how did I find myself here? Right. I don't know. I just I've always had this like affinity for escaping and experimenting with like characters outside of myself. Did it start with some impersonations? Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly how it started. Like living room impersonations with the family. Right. And just trying to entertain like my mom and my brothers. And then it turned into, you know, maybe I'll try performing in front of like my class, like a small class of like twenty and and then maybe I'll try performing in front of the school. 
and eventually, you know, you find yourself getting a manager and auditioning for television and film. And I don't think that reserve thing about me has ever left. Right. But um, I've sort of gotten used to it. So it seems like the first professional opportunities were around age 16, right? And Something like that, you yeah. were still in school at the same time as doing I was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was. A lot of people would like to get a manager. How did you get a manager? Did somebody see something you did in school? No, it's funny. I just, my brother was a musical theater kid. And so he was in the industry predominantly as a dancer around that time. And I remember thinking, you know, gee, I'm not a dancer. I'm not a singer. I definitely don't feel like a musical theater kid, but it'd be cool to like, you know, to try out for some some roles. And so I went to this agency. I didn't even know you had to be 18 and go to an agency. And I went to the agency and I asked for a meeting with this guy. And he's like, you know what, this would be interesting. And I'd be interested in talking to you, but you'd have to bring your mom back with you. And so I had to get my mom, explain to her that I wanted to try this acting thing and that I needed her to come with me. And, you know, eventually this manager took a shot on me and I'm still with him 10, 11 years later. Should we give a shout out? Who yeah, shout out to Norbert Abrams in okay. Toronto. Out of Toronto. Out of Toronto. Wow. Yeah. So the first parts that landed was the very first Degrassi? That was probably one of the, one first, of the first. One of the very this first. This is a Canadian rite of passage. Canadian rite of passage, that's right. <laughs> the next generation. <laughs> exactly. It's like you really can't go on and do anything unless you, you touch that show. And I remember being such a big fan of the show growing up. And, you know, when it came around the time to, you know, where I finally got to be a part of it, it just felt like a really special, special thing. So I'm happy that it's a part of my yeah. past. Yeah. The chronology is sometimes tough because... Sometimes things are done first, but come out later. And I think an example of that is when the game stands tall. Is yeah. that right? Because that was early, mm -hmm. but it didn't come out till 2014. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. It took a while for it eventually to come out. And it's so crazy. It's like actors, sometimes we do so much work that it's probably never seen for, you know, two years maybe. So people kind of wonder what you've been up to. But, you know, making a movie is so much bigger than any one actor. Well, the reason I mentioned that one, and just to say you're playing a high school running back with kind of aspirations of college stardom uh, yeah. as well, and then some things happen, but that one's going to come up again later. But before we get further into other roles, you were seriously looking at going to college and putting this stuff on hold, right? Yeah. I what was. were you going to study? You know, I got into school for forensic psychology, and so, you know, that was going to be my major. I've always been fascinated with criminology, you know, why criminals do what they do and the psychology behind it all and then the science and how it's all connected. And, you know, I had full intentions on going to school. It's just been, you know, ever since I left high school, I've never really had the chance. Yeah. I've been so busy with acting work and, you know, trying to build this career that I had to put that on hold. But right. I'm sure my mom would appreciate it <laughs> if, if I went back at some point. Right. Well, for anyone who, you know, everybody's framed the, the last year for you as like this overnight, where did this guy come from? Yeah. And in fact, we're talking right now about your first major role, I would argue, I guess, for with Home Again is 2012. So this has yeah. been a little while. Yeah. And this is one you're playing a Jamaican deportee and you end up with a basically the Canadian equivalent of an Oscar nomination. This yeah. is seven years ago. That's right. So yeah. can you talk about that one? And maybe your first really meaty opportunity. Yeah, that was the first lead I ever got in the film. Shout out to Sud Sutherland and Jen Holness, 
who gave me that role after, you know, I played a British kid and they actually auditioned kids in London with a real accent. So it was something I just had to sort of learn and to go with, but just so grateful for what that opportunity meant for me to understand what it was like to lead a film for the first time. And it was a small film, but you know, for me, I remember that was the first time I actually saw myself on screen, like in a theater and, and it blew me away. So where was that screening? It was in Toronto, I think at the Scotia Bank Theater. Uh, yeah. And that's the first time I saw myself ever on a big screen it blew me away that's awesome so i guess between that movie getting done and you actually getting nominated for that equivalent of an oscar in canada for it you went with that movie to the toronto international film festival this is 2012 yeah and i believe that that itself kind of was an important thing because who did you meet there at the film festival So many people. I mean, are you? Should I know a particular well, person? Well, I'm gonna. You about? ended up working with a couple of them soon. Um, we got Ava and David. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a crazy story. <laughs> yeah. That's a crazy story. Should I tell it? Yeah, please, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so you know we're doing this run for Home Again, and I had the opportunity to premiere my first leading role. You know, in the festival. At and home. So, at home. And it was a huge deal. And I remember being over the moon about it. And, you know, sort of at one of these parties, I want to say it was the in-style party. I was just, you know, walking through with my brother and doing the thing, shaking hands. And I recognized an actor, David Oyelowo, who I had known from many, many different films. And I basically went up to him and I told him, you know, that I was a fan and I really respected and appreciated his work. And then this woman with Dreads comes and walks up and at the time I didn't know who she was but David introduced me to her as Ava and Ava was premiering another film there I believe it was Middle of Nowhere I want to say with David and so you know Ava was so gracious she extended a couple tickets to me and my brother to watch Middle of Nowhere and I just remember that being the first time we ever sort of met and then you know two years later or something like that getting cast off a tape for a film called Selma. And David, I guess, as much as Ava is responsible for that, too, because just another crazy twist of fate. But if it didn't happen, who knows how things would have been different. But David takes his kids to go see a movie, right? Yeah. And this is where we come back to when the game stands tall. Yeah, yeah. So crazy. David takes his kids, and he's got like four kids, to a kid's movie. And sort of before the movie, during the previews, there was a trailer for When the Game Stands Tall, the first American film I'd ever done. And I have sort of a smaller role in the film. I must have been in the trailer for two seconds, maybe three. Mm -hmm. I think three is probably being generous. Mm -hmm. And David sees me in this trailer, and right after, you know, this film's over, he calls Ava right away and was like, I saw this kid in the trailer for this new film called When the Game Stands Tall. You gotta have him read for John Lewis. And I don't know what it was about that trailer. I mean, like, I probably didn't even say anything in the trailer, I feel like. But that's why I'm wondering just right now, the way I'm seeing you, because you've got the mic in front of you, yeah. I'm seeing your eyes. Yeah. I remember watching Selma, which this eventually led to, where you're playing John Lewis. I'm like, I feel like this is must be John Lewis's grandson or right, something. Right, right, right. Because yeah. I think there is something physically resembling uh-huh. him. Yeah. I mean, maybe that was it. Maybe that's what got it, but. I mean, you know, everything's divine timing and circumstance, and I'm happy it was me. Yeah. So here you are, a Canadian, being asked to play an American icon, still very much alive. How did you prep? Did you feel more pressure than usual, not just because it's going to be a potentially high-profile movie, but because you're playing this guy who's going to see it, probably? Yeah, 100%. I think that, for me, 
Selma just struck me as something so important. Felt like we were telling a story that so needed to be told, that was so timely. And for me, I would have to live with the fact that, you know, first of all, John Lewis is still here and alive and doing incredible work in Congress. That and the way the rest of the world feels about his legacy and the legacy of that entire time, and everybody who was a part of the civil rights movement. And so knowingly, you know, John Lewis is going to see this film and he's going to tell you how he feels about it. <laughs> and so for me, it just meant so much. You know, he's always been a hero of mine and, and really bigger than an American hero, a world hero, a figure who I admire so much. You know, you talk about being on the front lines of justice as a 21, 22-year-old young man. That kind of bravery is sort of the reason why I'm sitting here today and I get to do the things that I get to do. And for me, you know, that's a little bit daunting and there's a certain level of responsibility that comes with it. But making that film with a director like Ava, a true auteur who was able to create this familial environment where everybody sort of bought into this idea, the retelling of this iconic moment. And we all sort of felt like we were on the same page and had a synergy that I can't remember having on too many sets. Well, we've had David on this podcast, and one of the things that he said, it was everybody kind of felt like a spiritual experience. I remember he talked about they needed a podium or something for one of his scenes, and they couldn't find one, so they go into the basement, and they're like, oh, yeah, this is the one that he actually yeah. used. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All this stuff. So it sounds like not only the subject matter, but the fact that the world that this movie came out into, which I know when you guys were making it, it was pre some of the more organized marches and things that were yeah. reacting to present day stuff. But yeah. I, it just seems like too much of a coincidence that, you know, we'd have these kinds of marches and stuff again. Yeah. There were literally marches happening in New York when we premiered the film. So it was eerily timely at that time. I remember. Is the black Canadian experience very different from the black American experience? Do you think? I think in different ways, you know, I think that, you know, I grew up in Toronto. Toronto is an extremely unique sort of city. It's probably the most multicultural city in the world per capita. So my experience was a little different in that I didn't really feel, you know, this idea of like segregation, this idea of you're only black or white or Mexican. I grew up with Muslims. I grew up with Asians, South Asians, all different types of people. And so for me, that really didn't exist. Was there racism? Yes. Was there sort of discrimination within the police department? Absolutely. I don't think the magnitude of police brutality is on the same level, and I don't think that the magnitude of mass incarceration is on the same level. But, you know, for me, I have a, just a unique, interesting perspective being an outsider in a way. Like David. Like David. But in a way, I'm an insider, too, because, you know, I, I feel just as American as anybody walking down the street now. No one sees me and sees me as a Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just a, I'm just right. an African-American walking on the streets in L.A. or in New York or wherever I may be. So I will say that I'm grateful for the perspective that I, that I have. What is the black ball? Oh, the black ball. That's crazy that you asked me. I'm actually, I'm wearing the jacket right oh, now. Yeah. So the black ball is an initiative that me and my brother started three years ago in Toronto. And it started as this really, really small idea to just sort of celebrate diverse filmmakers, artists who are coming out of Toronto and transcending borders and breaking boundaries into America and into the world. And so it started as this small idea, you know, just as a celebration that me and my brother had. And we sort of, you know, paid for this celebration out of pocket. 
until last September, the Toronto International Film Festival officially partnered with us. And they hosted it themselves. They threw the party themselves. And we were able to host it with them. And Cameron Bailey is cool. Dude. And Cameron yeah. Bailey, who's who's so awesome, who's been so supportive of us. You know, recently we brought the Black Ball to Los Angeles for the first time mm-hmm. ever, which was super incredible. And the timing of it just worked out perfectly with everything that's been going on. So the idea is just celebrate Black artists in Canada? Well, Black artists in Canada who were doing things in the world and abroad. And for us, it meant so much to bring it to Los Angeles because there is so many of us Canadians who are doing such incredible work out here. You want to shout out a few just for people who may not even realize I mean, yeah. I mean, Mena Masood, who's doing the Aladdin movie with Will Smith, Lamar Johnson, of course, my brother Shamir Anderson. There's a lot of people doing a lot of great, great work coming from my city. And I just feel proud to be a part of that wave of, yeah. of artists and you know to celebrate that success here i think it's just so telling of how far we've come absolutely so two weeks after selma wrapped i think you are back at work on the movie race which is in part about jesse owens the great sprinter and leading up to the 1936 olympics in berlin where he made history this is a project that or people have been trying to tell the Jesse Owens story forever. Yeah. I remember interviewing Anthony Mackie, I think in like 2005, and it was streaming about getting to do it. Yeah. And I don't know if he ever did a different movie where it happened, but here you are, you get to be the guy. And again, not just a famous person, not just a person who actually lived, all of that, which comes with the pressures we talked about with John Lewis. But in this case, somebody who was one of the most extraordinary athletes ever. Yeah. And that means for you, you better either get a great double or (laughs) get yourself in shape. So what was the course of action? Oh, yeah, yeah. Little do you know, man, (laughs) I put in a lot, a lot of work to play Jesse. And when I found out that I was going to be Jesse Owens, I was still making Selma. And so I realized I didn't really have too much time in between the two films that I was going to have to start training to play Jesse while I was still playing John Lewis. So basically on my weekends and every day I had off on Selma, I go down to Georgia Tech and start training with the track and field coaches there, start working on not only running fast, but running like Jesse, you know, because his gait was so unique that that was something I had to master over time. So what was the trick? I think he popped up, right? Yeah, yeah, which was something he got better at. When he originally started running, he would hop up really fast out of his gate, and he sort of had to learn this gradual climb to, you know, his full running posture. And so, yeah, you know, that was a part of it, too, was learning how to do it the wrong way and then learning how to do it the right way. So I can say that I was probably in the best shape of my life making that movie. (laughs) That was 2016. Then in 2017, you did a limited series for Fox that, I think is pretty interesting. Shots fired, made with Gina Prince Bythewood, who people know from Love and Basketball and all kinds of stuff. You're playing another athlete, but an athlete turned Justice Department lawyer here. Yeah. And this is a real interesting look at race dynamics in America, because in this case, it's an unarmed white kid yeah. killed by a black cop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I'm- was that one like? Wow, I mean, I just thought it was so bold of Gina and Fox to go about telling a story like this, to sort of invert the story in a way we're not really used to seeing, to effectively give people maybe a different perspective that they may not have had before, or maybe, you know, evoke a level of empathy or sympathy that 
you know, one may not have had before. And for me, it struck me as an opportunity to do something again that I felt was never done. I hadn't seen too many young black lawyers on television. And I thought that that was really, really, really cool. And so I'm forever in the debt of Gina Prince Bythewood and Reggie Rock Bythewood for having me be a part of that show and making a statement in that way. I'm guessing that it was around the time that you were making that, which if it came out in 2017, you probably were making it in 2016, which means that's around the time that we all saw a movie for the first time called Moonlight. Yeah. And do you remember where you saw that for the first time? Yeah, I think I was just at home. I had heard so much about Moonlight and obviously, you you know, there are so many films every year that, you know, people tell you, you, you just got to watch. And Moonlight was one of those films for me. So I remember downloading it on Apple and, uh, and just, say, you got to don't say uh one of the services you're not no, supposed to no, no, no. <laughs> just just iTunes just, right. just got it off of right. iTunes and, right. and I watched it in my house and what was the impact of that on you for me watching Moonlight I hadn't seen a film that striking in a long long time it felt like something bold it felt like a bold piece of work made from a bold artist and you know Barry Jenkins is just that I think that to examine a story of black queer young men and their journey you know into adulthood and finding themselves and what it means to be a man i think that it's just a bold bold sort of film choice to make and so you came away from that i mean in a way that was the first step in the process towards beale street right i mean you were so impressed that you said this is a guy i want to work with absolutely absolutely and i went back and watched this first film medicine for melancholy and i just knew in my spirit that i was going to work with barry jenkins one day and and i sort of just put that into the earth and then you know beale street ends up in my lap a couple years later I think that's undercrediting yourself because you really went after it, right? Can you share yeah. with people how this is unusual in the best way yeah. that you said you wanted to do something and how did you go about it? Yeah, so, you know, I get this script like most actors do called If Beale Street Could Talk and it had been adapted from a James Baldwin novel by Barry Jenkins. And I thought, gee, Barry Jenkins and James Baldwin and there's this character named Fonny. Like, my name's Stefan. Mm-hmm. And I said it to myself and I just, I had like this weird, like out of body sort of moment where it was kind of like, I felt James Baldwin had written this role for me in 1973 or whenever he wrote it. And so, yeah, I just didn't really see any other option. I just had to be a part of this film. And so I reached out to Barry and asked if he would meet me in LA just for like lunch. And he said, yes. And we met, we spoke about the film. We spoke about the story he wanted to tell. We spoke about the colors, the palette of the film. And yeah, I mean, I was even more impressed by him in person. He's just super, super smart and super specific and, you know, has a real sort of vision. I could just feel his excitement about telling a story like this. And so, you know, it made me want to be a part of it even more. I know at some point, I think you did or at least offered to shoot scenes of yourself. Was that before that? (laughs) Well, no, when I met him in person, I told him, you know, listen, Barry, I'd put every scene in the script on tape if you wanted me to. And he assured me that I didn't have to do that. (laughs) But I was willing to go there to be a part of this film. I really was. And how soon after the lunch did you learn that you had the part? About a week after that, he called me and let me know. So it's worth going the extra mile, folks. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So now... Other than reading the script and, and maybe the book as well prior to, you know, going to work, was there anything else you could do to prepare yourself to play that part? I heard that maybe you were thinking at least about a more recent 
person who had been through similar things to what Fani goes through? Sure. I mean, you know, the interesting thing about this story is, you know, even though it was written in, in 1973, so many of the issues that Baldwin discusses are so, you know, relevant and prevalent today. And so, you know, for me as an actor, it didn't really take me going back to the 1970s to find an example of this young man, Fani, who had been robbed of his innocence, who had fallen victim to a system that is supposed to protect you, but in turn, you know, fails a particular group of people time and time again. And so for me, I didn't really have to go back to the 1970s. We see unfortunate examples of this in everyday life, everyday culture. And so... What was really striking to me was the story of Khalif Browder and, you know, this young man who in 2010 in New York was arrested and and charged with petty theft of a backpack, a crime that he didn't commit. And in order to sort of to maintain his innocence as any 16 year old boy would want to, he, you know, he pleads not guilty and, you know, was awaiting trial at Rikers Island. Uh, for three years. That's ridiculous. Two and a half of which he spends in solitary confinement. And, you know, this just, this whole thing, I just, I mean, it just, it left me heartbroken. It left me heartbroken because, you know, I realized even though I was watching this documentary about Khalif, you know, that this was just one story. This was just one story that we were being let in on. He came out. Yeah. And didn't last long yeah, yeah exactly and that just tells you the effects of what a system like that can really do to a person and you know that's why i think you you make a film like bill street so i guess the other component that had to get in place before you could really start rolling cameras on this was we got to get Fani's love interest here because yeah. the centers are it's a two hander essentially with great supporting parts as mm-hmm. as the oscar will prove for regina king but mm-hmm. you end up working opposite Kiki Lane, who had never been in a movie before. So because this relationship is going to be so central to the movie, did you have to do a chemistry read or anything to kind of just make sure that visually and every other way this was going to work? Yeah, yeah, we definitely had to do a chemistry read. After I had been cast, Barry asked me to come down to New York to to chemistry read with a few potential tishes. And Kiki Lane was one of those tishes. And so we came in and, and sort of, you know, we read the scenes together and, and Barry sort of fed us direction and just, I guess, wanted to see how we adapted and how we how we worked with each other. And what I remember most about Kiki was just this raw energy that she had, this thing that felt sort of unrehearsed and pure, like, you know, extremely pure. And for me, that was such a such a joy to, to see. And I'm a young actor myself, but... But, um, you know, there's something about, you know, when somebody's never made a film before and, and, you know, there's no technicalities that they're thinking about. They're just thinking about raw emotion. It was special to see that from Kiki. And so, yeah, I think. So you knew of the people you had read with, Mm -hmm. you were leaning, you would have. I'm not going to take the credit for it. It was it was Barry's choice. (laughs) But I definitely felt good about Kiki. Yeah. All right. So you guys go to work. Barry, unlike Ava, I think, does not do much in the way of rehearsal, right? Yeah. yeah. So you just have to go right into it. And one thing I'm wondering, because it is such a kind of poetic movie where it's the music and the pacing and the vibe of it is all very, seems deliberate, but when you're doing what you have to do before any of a lot of that other stuff, the music and everything gets added in, mm-hmm. how are you knowing the beats? Like how it feels like 
a very unhurried thing where there are these long exchanges sometimes between characters and but like how's Barry directing it so that everybody understands that even before all the pieces come together yeah I think the special thing about Barry is just you know the bandwidth he has for like allowing actors patience you know an extreme amount of patience to find ourselves within these characters to find ourselves within these moments and you know to allow us to sort of you know, explore, you, you know, the intimacy in a human being in a way that just is so, you know, it's it's raw, it's real, it's it's poetic, and it's love. It's like a love that you've never really seen on screen. And, and you know, I think it's a big, really, it's a big credit to Barry, you know. He was al- always allowed us our space. He encouraged us to take our time, to find the little moments. Nothing was ever rushed. And his attention to detail and the little nuances that help, you know, say a thousand words when nothing's being said at all. I think that's the genius of of Barry Jenkins. How logistically did it work, though, for you and Kiki, where most of your scenes, I think, are if people, you know, did the math, I would guess that most of them are you're separated by glass. Sure. And the way those are shot, you're usually looking into the camera, essentially. Yeah. I don't even know if she was there opposite you. Mm-hmm. So how does how does that work to be, you know, just acting in that way? Yeah, I mean, even that, that's, you know, it's sort of a strange thing for an actor to, to get used to. You know, I had all this time with Kiki beforehand where we, you know, were so close to each other, holding each other's hands, making love, just being intimate with each other. And, you know, when we got around to filming the prison stuff, it was just a week or two of... of you know, what felt like solitude and, you know, this like this feeling of I think that we were reaching for each other, reaching through the glass for each other emotionally. And, you know, I think it's a hard thing for actors to do to to, you know, be that vulnerable and to have that to to be able to emote that through glass. When you're talking to her through the glass and we're looking at you on yeah. through the camera, you're talking into the camera. Yeah. Was she even in the room? She was in the room, but not directly, not directly. in front of me. Yeah, we oh. use this this camera called Interatron. Yeah, they, they, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. which they use in a lot of documentaries. And essentially, Kiki was in the same space, you know, maybe a few stalls down from me. But I wasn't even staring at her directly. I'm staring at what's almost a reflection of her, right. essentially. Did they? Oh, because with the Interatron, as I understand it, like when Errol Morris is using it in his documentaries, it looks like for the subject, like he's looking at them exactly because of the mirrors or whatever yeah there's like the mirror a mirror image so they don't feel weird about talking into the camera but you're saying because kiki's not operating the camera yeah what did they just put a picture of her pretty much yeah pretty much (laughs) wow so so yeah it's a whole different exercise for for an actor amongst all the crazy exercises we gotta do yeah you and barry and everybody involved with this and and a lot of people not involved with it have talked about Beale Street as kind of like a, just totally apart from the qualities of the filmmaking and everything, as a kind of revolutionary movie because of what it depicts. Can you explain what makes it unlike other movies that people have seen before in that sense? Well, I think that this film is, it's revolutionary because it examines this idea of black love, you know? And black love, 
you know, because we don't always get to see black love told in this sort of way, you know, this pure sort of way, like a, a real love between soulmates, you know, it's something that we've never really seen for the, for the screen. You know, I think that it's special in that way where, you know, Barry Jenkins, after making Moonlight, he could have gone and made whatever film he wanted to make, but he chose to make a film like this that would show, you know, young children what it means to really be in love, what it means to sacrifice everything for your family, to show young black men what it means to be vulnerable, to challenge this idea of like black masculinity and what, you know, what we were often shown in, in cinema and, and in the arts, you know, to challenge that perspective and say that we can look like this, like black men could be artists and sculptors and, and painters and they could be sensitive and they could cry and they could lean on their fellow brother to expose their deepest, darkest fears and the things that haunt them at night. I think that the film is, is seminal for those reasons. Where did you see it finished for the first time? I saw it in a little studio here in LA, um, but it was a it was a pretty early cut when I saw it for the first time. And then Toronto. And then Toronto, yeah. So back back to the belly of the beast. Yeah. What was that like? To now be not only in a leading role, which we had done going back to home again, but this is gonna be a major movie. The the first movie since his best picture winner. Yeah. It definitely felt different doing Tiff this time around with this film. You know, to just come back to Toronto and and to literally, you know, premiere this film at a theater that's like two minutes away from the high school I went to. Which was it, Roy Thompson? Or? Uh, no, Jarvis Collegiate. Uh, oh, no, no, but the theater. The which theater, is- yes. The theater was, we, we did it at Princess of Wales oh, Theater yeah, great. Um, yeah. on King Street. Yeah, yeah. Which is just, I mean, it's crazy to me because it's just like, it's these places, my, my stomping grounds that, you know, I see the places I used to go to lunch at and, and, and you know, the bars I used to go to. And like the the streetcars I used to take, and and to know that you know I was I was coming back to Toronto and you know bringing this film here for the first time, you know anyone in North America was going to see this film, to have it, you know, be in my city and and to share in that moment with my family and my friends, you don't have too many of those in this career. I mean, even if you've been around for twenty, thirty years, and so I'm just so so grateful for it. A few months later. As actually, like less than two weeks ago, this movie was at the Oscars with three nominations, and I'm trying to remember. You you were there, right? You went. I was there, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, what was that night like? Where people are, on the one hand, so thrilled not only to see Regina win, but to see all the recognition for Beale, for Black Panther, Black Klansman, some historic wins around you know Black Panthers, craftspeople, Spike's first. Oscar in competitive yeah. category. Yeah. And then Best Picture, Green Book, a very different take on race in America. It's been a, this whole conversation in the last two weeks has has been pretty interesting. I wonder if you have any thoughts. I mean, I'm not really sure of the conversation. Maybe I've been living under a rock <laughs> since the Oscars, but I just, uh, what can I say? I'm, I'm, you know, I got to present. I presented hair, right. hair and makeup to the vice team, which was, you know, totally well-deserved. But for me, it was just, I mean, it's my first time at the Oscars, man. I, I like, <laughs> I watched the show since I was a kid, you know, from my living room. And all of a sudden I'm on the other side of the TV and like walking on the stage. It's unreal, unreal, you know, to look out into the audience and 
just see so many of these like faces that have inspired you for so long. And then, you know, knowing that, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm kind of supposed to be here. Like I was invited mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I was meant to be here. So it's just a special, special feeling. That's great. Now, while Beale Street was in motion, is that when you booked Homecoming? That's right. Yeah. So was, how did that even come about? Yeah. So I was working on Beale Street in Harlem. And then, you know, my manager sends me this podcast called Homecoming. And I had never listened to a podcast in my life. So I just sort of shelved it. Right. And uh, and it, it sat in my email for a couple of weeks. And then he was like, man, you really, really got to listen to this podcast like it's something special. And so I started listening to this podcast. I gave it a try. And man, I was like, this is what I've been missing. Like, this is what podcasts mean. This is what they do. I was just so drawn in and like this, like this story, this dystopian universe that was, you know, homecoming and this relationship that, that Walter and Heidi had. And then, you know, of course I, I said, I have to read the script. So read the script, found out that Julia Roberts was attached and then I said, okay, well, this is like, you know, this is, I think this is going to be special. And I put myself on tape for Sam Ashmel uh, while I was in New York. And before you know it, I was on a plane to chemistry with Julia. Now, just knowing that you're headed there to do that, what's, yeah. what does that do to a person? It's a lot. It's <laughs> a lot, man. It's not, it's a lot. You know, luckily I've been, you know, as actors, we sort of, we go through these moments a lot. And if, if you've been through enough of them, you sort of are, are able to brace yourself for it. I just remember having so many lines. Even just for the the chemistry read with exactly, her. Exactly, for the audition wow. with her. And I just thought, okay, before I worry about Julia Roberts right. being in the room, I got to just worry about these lines. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I just really, really made sure I pounded those lines on the flight over and, and, and leading up to it. And then, you know, once you get there, it's kind of like, oh, it's, it's Julia Roberts. You know, you can't help but to, like, marvel for a beat. You know, you've just seen right. her in, like, too many movies. And, right. you know, she's just this sort of larger-than-life, you know, figure. But luckily, she's just the sweetest human being on Earth and sort of just broke down all these walls with me really, really quickly and, and just gave me a level of, of comfortability that I really couldn't have asked for. We had her on a few, maybe two months ago, in conjunction with, I think, when Homecoming was just, rolling out yeah and one of the things i asked her is how she goes about doing that we're making she knows just like meryl streep and other people when it doesn't have to even be a young actor when somebody else any other actor basically walks in the room (laughs) they're gonna be a little paralyzed by who this is yeah i don't think she said there was like a uniform way that she always sort of Mm de-escalates the situation Mm -hmm. so how did she do that with you how did she just make herself another human being well, that first time it was like, I mean, and I don't know if people know this, but she's like hilarious. She's so funny and she just, you know, she's so warm. And, you know, I just remember that first time, even before we started reading, we just started talking to each other. And like, she was like, well, where are you coming from? You know, what have you, what have you been doing? What you've been working on? And I was like, I'm working with on this film with Barry Jenkins <laughs> in New York. And, you know, she talked about 
Toronto and her favorite restaurants in Toronto. And, and we just sort of just had our own little private moment. You know, meanwhile, 10 executives are waiting for us to, <laughs> to read these lines. Right, right, yeah. I just think that it's so, you know, for her to be able to do that. And, and it starts with her, right? For her to be able to do that. And, and, and by the way, this attitude was, you know, it was the whole time, mm-hmm. um, you know, even through filming where she has this way of making everybody feel so important and uh, everyone feel welcomed and, and like they were supposed to be there. And I mean, she really talks to everyone the same way, whether it's Sam Eshmael or myself or a grip or the catering lady, you know, everybody is sort of dealt with in the same sort of manner. And, and it starts with her and that attitude is sort of infectious. So in terms of the appeal of the character that you're playing and the project itself, it's not only that it's good material. It's not only that it's Sam Eshmael is coming off of Mr. Robot. Mm-hmm. It's not only that it's Julia Roberts, but from what I've been able to, you know, gather from reading other stuff that you've said about it, it's that this role, like others that you hope to play, is basically colorless, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Walter Cruz on paper, I would have assumed is a Hispanic guy. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that was part of the draw? Hugely, man. Hugely, hugely. I think that there's a lot to be said for casting, you know, minority actors in, in a role like this, in a role where you're so heavy opposite an actress like a Julia Roberts. And it's not contingent on your race. It's just purely, you know, about what you bring to the table as an artist. And so for me, that meant a lot. And it just it, it makes sort of a, a statement, I think, that we are capable of telling a, a vast sort of, you know, diverse range of stories. And Sam ends up at Julia's. I think this was one of her two requirements. Sam's got to direct every episode himself. Yeah, yeah. So what's that? I mean, what makes him good? Because we know from Mr. Robot, he's got something special. But now he, this shows it wasn't a fluke. So what is it? Oh, yeah. I mean, no flukes over there. I mean, Sam is probably like, one of the most ambitious directors I've ever worked with. He always has just real big ideas. And sometimes he doesn't even know if he has the time to like pull it off, but he'll try it anyway. You know, these like crazy camera moves. And, you know, he's such a such a visionary in that way where he just has such a specific way of how things are going to look aesthetically. He's really good at gauging the temperature of a scene and, 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 and sort of the pacing and timing of, of not giving the audience too much or, or when we're not giving enough. So... You know, what can I say? I'm, I, I was so grateful to have him for all 10 and to be able to, to just have one brain to go back and refer to and to, to be on this journey with. I guess one of the things that makes this show unusual, particularly in 2018, 2019, is that it's not centered on action. There's very little in the way of, you know, flash and whatever. It's old-fashioned people talking to each other. Yeah. And... You know, not like a lot of other shows out there anymore, but, you know, the one that I kept thinking about, I don't know if if you happen to have seen it, but there was a show on HBO a few years ago called In Treatment, where it's basically Gabriel Byrne playing a shrink, and every five episodes it rotates between a different one of his patients. So we see his Monday patient, and they Mm -hmm. come back five episodes later, and whatever. But it was this kind of thing where, just like where you and Julia, for the most part, are having these long you know, sessions with a lot of dialogue. And I guess because it's so unusual, is that fun? Is that daunting because there's so much dialogue? Do you have a trick to digesting that much 
and and remembering that much dialogue. There are no tricks around yeah. <laughs> remembering that much dialogue. You just gotta you just gotta learn them. But you know, I think that what really helped is you know, the, it's so beautifully written, so conversational that for you know for any actor, it's sort of a dream. It's a really huge credit to Eli Horowitz and Michael Bloomberg who who wrote the podcast and and it, and wrote the adaptation for the series. It's just brilliant at having these sort of moments where you can have 10 minutes of nonstop dialogue but be invested in, in, in every minute of it and not feel like anything's too slow and not feel bored. You know, you always uh, find yourself on the edge of your of your seat. So it's a real skill. And I think it's helpful, obviously, that, you know, the episodes are only a half hour. And yeah, so, it's nice. Yeah. So you know, half-hour to... drama was, was not really around much anymore. And now you guys have helped to bring it back. To bring it back. So, yeah, happy to be a part of that. Yeah. So, be honest, on Golden Globe nominations morning, yeah, were you expecting good news? <laughs> I forgot that it was Golden Globe <laughs> nominations. <laughs> I totally forgot. You know, like my phone was was off and my cell phone was off and and you know, I got a call on on the hotel phone that that I was that I was staying at and I just pick up the phone and I just hear like screams <laughs> of my publicist <laughs> who's here and uh and uh, and my manager just going crazy you know that I had been nominated for a Golden Globe and I, I really couldn't even make out what they were saying at first I was just like wait what and I was like right. wait Bill Street who <laughs> Regina yeah I know Regina but who, who else and so I didn't even know who it was, but but to find out that it was me and I, you know, that the film had been nominated, the show had been nominated, that I had been nominated as an individual, total surprise. So was that show itself your first as, obviously we've talked about the Canadian Oscars, but in terms of the, the big time, was that the, the first? That was the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did it, did it live up to the hype? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I enjoyed it. I, I saw so many people who I just love and admire so much. And the cool thing about the Golden Globes is it's like a big like dinner party. Right. You could like walk around and schmooze and talk to people <laughs> and and tell people how much you love them. So and Regina won. And Regina won. So so the final scene in Homecoming, which I if I remember correctly, comes after the end credits, is awesome and kind of haunting. And I've been with people where they can't control themselves. They go. Ooh, ooh. Like it just <laughs> takes people's breath away without giving away what takes place there. How did you feel about leaving it on that note? And will there, I'm unclear, like is this homecoming over or is there potentially more for, for where that came from? You know, I, I, I kind of like the, the season ends and, and, you know, we leave it sort of up to interpretation. I think that the biggest thing I get asked all the time was, the fork, man, the <laughs> fork. Every time somebody sees me, they're like, what about that fork? Right, right. I mean, I, I can't really explain it. I get more, I get a kick out of seeing people try and understand it themselves. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, I think Homecoming, it certainly continues. And, you know, I'm excited to see where it goes. So finally, just a kind of big picture question here. I guess about your feelings in this moment and your outlook for the future in December, in the midst of all the award stuff happening with both Beale Street and Homecoming, you signed with CAA, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you wrapped another, your next movie, 17 Bridges, which I'll ask you if you want to tease it at all a little bit about what that is, but that I think we'll be seeing this year. Yeah. And then 
I've heard you want to do some directing. There may be some yeah. other things. So just like give us the, the state of the union at the moment for Stefan James. Yeah, I mean, a lot going on. I don't know how much of it I can say right here, right now to you. <laughs> oh, I um, think you should just you know, let it all out. <laughs> we can deal with that later. <laughs> uh, maybe after this. Um, no, I'm so excited. So, so excited. You know, obviously started a new relationship with CAA that, I'm, you know, I'm so proud of and, you know, looking to expand, you know, my horizons, looking to delve into directing, producing. Uh-huh which is something I'm really, really excited about. And then obviously can't forget about my acting career and, and, and continuing to build on that. So I think people can expect a lot more of a lot more from me. That's great. Well, it's exciting to follow. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, sure. thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.